Welcome to Highway Christian Community Sermon Downloads. For more sermons, please visit our website. We know you will be blessed as you listen. Take care and God bless. Good evening, everyone. What I'm going to share with you tonight may challenge some of you a bit. I'm going to focus on the Bible as a collection of very old books and to draw some comparisons from other very old books. First, I should tell you why I'm qualified to speak about this. And it's not because of what I know about the Bible. It's because years ago, I studied medieval languages and literature. And the work I did for my PhD involved working on a particular group of manuscripts, looking at the relationships between them, identifying which are the oldest and which was the earliest version of the text. It was a funny little text about exotic and mythical creatures. And I was working with manuscripts that dated between the 9th and the mid-14th centuries, three languages. So I do feel that I can come to looking at Bible manuscripts with an insight from secular manuscripts. But before we get there, why is it worth why is it worth looking at okay, I haven't got that one. <laughs> why is it worth looking at the Bible in this way? You know, for a lot of people outside the church, the way that they think we think about the Bible uh, can be a big hurdle. Sometimes when we engage the lost, the Bible is one of the biggest obstacles, perceptions of the Bible, perceptions of our perceptions of the Bible. So the world sees the Bible as a very old book. It is actually a, very, a unique, very old book. But if we look at it as an old book and we look at its uniqueness, we will be better equipped to answer those questions when they come to us. We also need to acknowledge up front that there is a very fine line between respect for the Bible and worship of the Bible or bibliolatry. No, we should be moving now. Okay, there we go. Yes, I was pressing the wrong one. Now, let's go back to the very beginning. A form of writing goes back to about the time of Abraham, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But evidence of writing in an early form of Hebrew only goes back to the time of David. So what happened before the scriptures were committed to writing? Oral transmission, storytelling, but not just storytelling. You'll see in the one picture, that is a hundred years ago, men sitting around the fire in the evening, passing on their traditions. That is an artistic representation of the law of Iceland, which wasn't written down until 1117. It was recited by a guy who was called the law speaker every year at the Great Assembly. 
he recited it verbatim. They called all the leaders together. They recited the whole law of the land, and everybody went away, remembered what they could, and the next year they came and listened to it again. Oral tradition can be very, very accurate. One characteristic of oral tradition is that you get a lot of repetition. And if you look at some of the earlier books of the Bible, you will see there's a lot of repetition in there. Now, Steve, in his first talk about the Bible, reminded us that the Bible is human as well as divine. And as such, it reflects aspects of the understanding of the people who put it together. Those early compilers of the Bible sat in Mesopotamia. If you're in Mesopotamia, um, it seems that pretty much whichever direction you go in, eventually you come to the sea. So the Bible has a worldview which has the earth surrounded by water. They then thought, yeah, Something's got to be keeping those stars up there. So the Bible has a worldview with what the King James calls a firmament, into which are plugged the sun, the moon, and the stars. And above that, well, it's obvious. Something's got to be holding the rain and the snow up there. Job talks about the storehouses for snow. So the worldview in the Bible reflects the understanding of the people of the time. I think most of us would recognize that's our pale blue planet, or that's our even paler moon. And that this, this is a picture that we are very used to, but it would have been totally alien. Remember, until, until sometime in the 16th century, if you'd suggested that as a possibility, you were burnt at the stake as a heretic. So, beginnings of writing. Writing started in the Western world as urbanization started. In the Far East, there was a different, a different flow, but basically around about 2500 BC, people started needing to communicate and record. But what they did initially in the area where Abraham lived was write on lumps of clay. They started with little pictures, and then they did what cuneiform. So they took a stick with a shape at the end and stabbed it. And you'd have one with a round shape, one with a triangular shape, and you'd, you'd make your clay tablet. And you could either soak it and reuse it, or you could bake it and keep it forever. Obviously, the ones we find are the ones that were baked and kept forever. So Abraham, around about 2000 BC, lived in a society where writing was very limited because you can't write an awful lot on one of those tablets. I've jumped one. But meanwhile, in Egypt, they were using a different local material for writing. They were using papyrus. Now, again, we know that it was used, but think about how difficult it was to produce. In order to prepare papyrus for writing, 
You had to soak it for two weeks. You cut it into thin strips. You laid two strips, two strips, and you pressed it together with stone. You dried it, and then you rubbed it smooth. You're not going to be jotting down your shopping list on that. It's too special. This picture here is the earliest surviving Egyptian papyrus. It was discovered in caves in 2013. The amazing thing is that so much of what I found when I was researching for this has only been around or only been known for about 20 years. They're finding the new material the whole time, and they're finding it in caves in the desert where the extreme dryness is protecting it. Now, Moses was educated as an Egyptian prince, so he would have been familiar with papyrus. And looking at dates, and all the dates, the more different places you look, the more different dates you get. But Moses and the Exodus of roundabout 1500, 1200 BC in that range. So papyrus, well-developed. Now, what do we know about early Hebrew? They discovered, again, not long ago, I think it was 1979, they discovered an inscription that they have dated probably on the basis of what else was found in the same place. It's called the Kerbet Keifa inscription. And it's the earliest known writing in something that is the, the underlying Hebrew. It's not Hebrew yet, just as the English in the manuscripts I worked on was not English yet. It was on its way to being English. And because it's very early. Scholars are really not sure what it means, but it's suggested that it's about serving God and protecting widows and orphans. So it's not biblical, but it is totally in line with a lot of the instructions in uh, Leviticus and the early books. Oh, yes, I should have said, um, that is about the same date as King David. So at the time of King David, the language they were using would have been proto-Hebrew. Now, the earliest actual biblical quotation that has been found, uh, this was the one that was found in 1979, found in southwest Jerusalem. They were two silver amulets. And when they were found, they were rolled up, tiny little things, rolled up, and somebody would have worn them as a protection. They were found in a grave. So technically, to an archaeologist, they were grave goods, something buried with somebody. And they have the priestly blessing from Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So round about 587, give or take a century or two, B.C., somebody 
treasured those so much that they were put in the grave with them. And when they were found, they actually asked several universities, can you unroll these things? And they looked at them and they said, no, no, we're not touching that. That's far too fragile. Eventually, they were unrolled in um, a museum in Jerusalem and they were read. They date from about the time of the Babylonian exile. And it's worth noting that when the exiles returned to Jerusalem, they found a copy of the Torah in the ruins. So here we have evidence in the Bible and outside the Bible of the writing existing around about 500 BC. Obviously, the transmission goes back before that, but we have hard evidence to about 500, almost 600 BC. Jewish tradition, and you know, one tradition one can decide what one's going to do with, but Jewish tradition says that Moses wrote the Torah onto a parchment scroll. Now, parchment is possibly even more time-consuming to produce than papyrus. To prepare a parchment, you take an untanned sheep, calf, or goat skin, you scrape it, you stretch it on a frame, like that picture, until it's dry, and then you either cut it into pages, fold them in half, and stitch them into a codex, a book, or you put them in strips to produce a a scroll. Now, after the recovery of the Torah, after the return of the exiles, they introduced some very, very strict rules for producing further copies. The rules for Jewish scribes were, you can only use a clean animal skin. Well, that's obvious. A column may have no fewer than 48 lines and no more than 60. So your writing has to be a fairly certain size, as does your scroll, because your sheep, calf, or goat doesn't come standard size. So your parchment is not all the same. It's not like a sheet of paper. You know, we open a packet, we take out paper, and all the same. Um, Here they've got animals, and they're all different sizes. So now you've got to get your 48 to 60 lines. There was a special recipe for the ink. Now, the scribe had to repeat each word aloud while he was writing it. So you can imagine it in the scriptorium. They're all muttering away there. But one real beauty of that is that he's focusing on that word at the time when he's writing it. Before he writes the word Jehovah, he has to wipe the pen and wash his entire body every time he writes the word Jehovah. And even without factoring that in, they reckon that to hand copy a Torah took about 2,000 person hours, probably men. And then after 30 days, the scroll had to have been quality assured. Now, this is something that totally got lost 
outside the Hebrew tradition. And in order to quality assure it, they counted the number of letters in the scroll, the number of words, and the number of paragraphs. And by doing that and by having benchmarks of how many letters, words, and paragraphs are needed to be at a certain point, they could tell whether there were bits missing, um, whether there were bits added. If they found as many as three columns in the scroll that required correction, they burnt the lot. After all that work. (laughs) And to me... Yeah, this shows a phenomenal respect for the content of the word. I'm going to show you later that in the Middle Ages, that slipped. But, uh, and you couldn't destroy a Torah scroll. If it, if it had passed the QA, you couldn't destroy it. If you weren't going to use it, you had to hide it. After the sack of Jerusalem by the Romans and the loss of the temple, this process fell into abeyance. The the earliest actual copies of Old Testament texts were discovered, and I think most of us know the story, in 1946, which was a good year, wasn't it, Bill? Yeah. <laughs> in the Dead Sea Scrolls, some, uh, some herders went into a cave and found a lot of pottery jars containing old scrolls. They were a mixture of parchment, papyrus, And one was even made of copper. And for a very long time, scientists and historians, paleographers, and other experts were working on this. They date from 200 BC to 50 AD. There are about 850 scrolls in all. They include at least a fragment of every Old Testament book except the book of Esther. Some are in Hebrew, some are in Aramaic, and some in Greek. So suddenly, in 1946, we had a whole new set of evidence for what the Bible originally said. And then in the 3rd century BC, so going back 100 years before the earliest Dead Sea Scrolls were written, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, producing the Septuagint. The reason it was translated was that with the diaspora, fewer and fewer people could actually read the Hebrew one, and that Greek was the common language of the Roman Empire, and the uh, em- empire before that, which I think was... Alexander. Um, So from that time, we have not manuscripts, but we have the two versions. We have the Hebrew and the Greek. And then from about 200 BC onwards, we start getting the evidence of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Set it in context, 
Christ was born 4 BC. So some of the Dead Sea Scrolls predate him, and some were written afterwards. Now, what is really fascinating is that the the existing Hebrew manuscript that we had before that was about 1,000 years younger. So it was written around about 900 to 1,000 A.D. And when they compared the text of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls with the text in the extant manuscript, do you think it was the same? There were three textual variants. So, you know, that's phenomenally accurate transmission. Now, the earlier editors and translators of the Bible were limited, obviously, in the resources they had because they had the, the Torah, uh, they had the Septuagint. They had, the earliest manuscript they had of the Septuagint is this huge document here. I included that photo because you can see the size of that document and the way it dwarfs the man. That is the Codex Alexandrinus from 450 AD. It's the earliest complete Old Testament in Greek. Now, it's interesting that they didn't add the Hebrew vowels to the Hebrew until after 500. So up until that point, there was always a risk of misinterpreting. The earliest known Hebrew version, manuscript, of the Old Testament is 920 AD. But most of the early translators, particularly the English translators, didn't go back to manuscripts. Somebody had started with the manuscripts, but they worked with other versions. Um, They would have taken the Vulgate, and they would have taken the continental uh, Protestant translations and looked at those and produced a translation. When you look, for instance, at the King James, and you see that there are some readings that are significantly different from the NIV, you often find that there's something in the footnotes of the NIV that says, not in the earliest manuscripts. Until recently... This was the oldest fragment of the New Testament that we had. It's a fragment from John 18 in the Rylands Library in Manchester, dated to about 175 AD. Um, But I saw that quite recently, in fact, May this year, like two months ago, they published the discovery of a fragment of the Gospel of Mark which may go back to 150 AD. It's somewhere between 150 and 250 AD. So again, they are still finding things. There are about 175 New Testament papyri, and some of them really are as small as this. they, They give you just a snippet, just an insight. But there's a total of around 5,300 Greek manuscripts. Quite a few of them would be later. Now, the interesting thing, this new Mark manuscript 
has not changed our thoughts on the readings at all. There were no variant readings. So in the very early text, you're seeing the same loyalty to the text as you see in the Hebrew Old Testament. You could almost say the Holy Spirit is protecting the word. So, the New Testament, how was it put together? Um, You will all have realized that there were more books written in the early centuries after Christ than are actually in the New Testament. But those that were considered to be divinely inspired were gathered together into a single canon. They started this in round about 170 A.D., 363 AD, the Council of Laodicea confirmed 26 books of the New Testament. They did not at that stage include Revelation. And these were books that were permitted to be read in churches. Revelation was not included until 419 AD. And in 405, the Bible was translated into Latin by St. Jerome, That's the Vulgate, which is still the Catholic Bible, and has been the basis for a very long time of biblical transmission. Now, when you study manuscripts, you recognize that unlike printed books, Each manuscript can be different from any other because they are all handwritten individually. And the objective of studying manuscripts is to recreate a text which is as close to the original writing as can be established. You can date and locate manuscripts by the study of handwriting, paleography. Writing changes over time. Writing changes in different scriptoria, writing houses. And you can also follow traditions. You can track a family tree of manuscripts. Each manuscript is a physical entity, so it may have external evidence that, like something else that's been included in it that could not have been written before a certain date. Um, You look at the different readings to track your family tree. And then you look at the changes that may have been introduced by scribes, sometimes inadvertently or deliberately. If you look at the Bible, in the Septuagint, And Job is a good example in the Septuagint. The translator was quite angry with something in Job, so he added to the words that were spoken by Job's wife. Um, You know, he added a bit of extra indignation there. But what's even more significant in Job is that it's a very difficult book, linguistically. It's a difficult book generally, but it's very difficult linguistically. It contains a hundred words that have never been found anywhere else. And it would appear that the Greek translator didn't have a clue what they meant. 
So he did what any good translator would do. He left him out. The Greek translation of Job is 400 lines shorter than the Hebrew version. So it immediately fails that scribe's test for a Torah scroll. There are bits missing. And if you read the footnotes in your Bible, if you look in the New Testament, there are two passages um, in there, there are lots of little bits, but there are two passages in the Gospels that are not found in the early manuscripts. We must ask ourselves, were they an addition? Were they taken from another tradition? Um, what weight do we give to something that's not in the earliest manuscripts? Do we accept it as having the same weight as the original writing? Those two passages... One is the story of the woman taken in adultery. And the other is the end of Mark, where Jesus talks about uh, drinking poison and things like that. They are not in the earliest manuscripts. So I think we, we must make our own judgment call on those. Now, we've talked about, I've talked about how, how, well, the authenticity of the text has been maintained, particularly in the Hebrew and from what we can see in the early New Testament manuscripts. My medieval manuscripts, I found, I found nine. I, to, to start this, I had my old English text, but then I had to look for related texts. So I had to work through a lot of manuscript catalogues, looking for things that were related and I found nine actual manuscripts dotted around Europe. And there were two or three texts which had been printed in the 19th century but subsequently lost because, unfortunately, two world wars wrought considerable damage on Europe's manuscript collections. And then there were quotations in other writings. So this was a text which had split into two families and into separate subfamilies. No two manuscripts were identical. So, trying to work out this is this one is from one of my old English manuscripts. The original text was about an Amazon huntress. She wore animal skins and rode a horse. Now, thanks to textual change, she now has boar's tusks, and she has almost become a horse. It's not that clear. Unfortunately, I don't have a colored facsimile of it. But she has the hooves of a horse, and she's got the tail of a horse, too. That is textual change. You can trace through the history how that Amazon Huntress became this strange hybrid creature in the words, and then the illustrator drew what he read. And in another version, there was a description of animals that were called hippopotami. And originally it said hippopotami apollanta. They're called hippopotami. The first variation, um, hippopotami, Potami, you see, looks like a Latin nominative plural. But apollant, apollanta is 
a passive, uh, but we make it active. They are called appellant. And then now we've got to have an accusative, so we make them host potamos. We call them potamos. And then a scribe at some stage really couldn't cope with that. I don't know what it went through in between, but by the time it gets to the last version, it's hippotanta homines fuisi. They are thought to be men. So the hippopotami have turned into men through textual change. I'm just showing you how easy it is for these things to go wrong. Yeah, no, this is, this is, yeah, this is showing how ordinary secular texts were simply, you know, the, the scribe would do what made sense to him. And Bible transmission, they were guided by, certainly in the early days, they were guided by a desire to keep the text very, very pure. And the evidence is that they did so. And that, I think, is one of the things that we can say when people say, well, do you believe that book? And you say, it, its transmission through the ages has been very, very protected. Now again, and again I'm going to use examples from my secular texts. Yeah. That's very good. I just wanted to uh, come in here and say, did you track with Andy that she was comparing secular transmission and how easy it can change hippopotamus, hippopotami, hippopotopinamitis compared to the biblical accurate transmission? Okay, just wanted to... I was the only one who didn't... Okay. <laughs> and another objective with um, manuscript study is to, as I said, to try and work out what the original text said. And that's not necessarily going to be the earliest manuscript. So you compare them and you track back and in one instance in my old English manuscripts there was a point where the readings had become very different and for years scholars had been debating which was the better reading and I was able to demonstrate that where these readings varied could be aligned with a corner of a page so diagonally across the corner on one side, and a few words changed on the other side. So you can posit that there was a stain which obliterated that corner on one side, worked through to part of the other side, and that the scribe had used the Latin parallel, which exists in the manuscript, to recreate, and he made total garbage. But again, these were people working in isolation, copying a single manuscript. They are not working under the control of a Hebrew scriptorium where they're going to count every letter, every word, every paragraph, and make sure that it all lines up with the standard. So, was the Bible text always so highly respected? 
This is an absolutely beautiful manuscript. It's the Lindisfarne Gospels. It was written about 700 AD. It's a stunning piece of work. And it's very interesting, too, in other ways, because these little black bits of writing that you might just about be able to see are one of the earliest translations into English because the whole thing has been translated into English on top of the ornate Latin version. This is obviously a copy of the Vulgate, and it is full of errors. um, It was compared with another text that was produced in the same scriptorium, and they said it's 96%, it aligns 96% with the other text. Well, if it aligns 96%, it means one word in 25 is different. So what you can see here is that the artifact has become more important than the word. Yeah, this is in the Middle Ages. This is 700 AD. In the West, there was only a Catholic church. Um, Yeah. And we're not saying that it's the same today. But during the Middle Ages, producing something that was very, very beautiful was considered more worthy than producing something that was an accurate reflection of the text. And when you make the physical book more important than the word it contains, you risk allowing that sort of thing to happen. There was something else on this that I wanted to show you. I'm not sure that you're going to be able to see it. This is a bit of an aside, and I'm actually running out of material. Um, You know people can get quite uptight about the use of the abbreviation Xmas. Okay. Can you see that X in that bottom line? That is a medieval abbreviation for Christ. Okay, so it's the cross. And it's been used as an abbreviation for Christ. Because when you're writing a manuscript, you don't laboriously write out everything. You use abbreviations. And everybody understands how these abbreviations work. And X stood for Christ. And this is the Liber Generationis Jesu Christi Filii and so on. So I don't think we need to get too upset about Xmas because actually it means Christ. And that was what I'd prepared, but uh, it does give us time for discussion. Welcome to Theology Lesson on uh, Bible Manuscripts session conducted by Dr. Anne Brain. And and, uh, if you want to go subject yourself to four years of theological training and study, rather, 
don't expect to hear um, Joyce Myers and uh, Rick Godwin and Ray McCauley type teachings every class you go to. Expect to have to stretch your mind a little bit in uh, some academic academia because our belief in the Christian faith is not just based on hallelujah, glory, I said so, said the Lord. It's based on very concrete, robust uh, translation uh, systems over, over hundreds of years, even over thousands of years. And if it wasn't for the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 46, people would still be saying, yeah, but so much could have changed since the time of Jesus. And then they find manuscripts 100, 200 years older, and they were virtually word perfect. It threw the whole anti-Bible belief uh, academia academia into complete turmoil because they're holding on to anything anti-Bible. It was a huge attack. That's why most Christians have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls for that reason. But you can imagine in a room like this with dimly lit lights, if you were all translating uh, from someone standing up and, and reading from a, a manuscript, here and there scribing, and someone was up here reading to you, here and there you might just misspell a word, you might forget to dot the I, and later on it looks like it could have been an N or an R. But the benefit of eventually finding five and a half thousand manuscripts is that you, when you run them through this, the sieve of textual criticism, you very quickly see, hang on, now we see why the R looked like an N. But in 99% it's N, but we can see why that can be mistaken. Or when other words are substituted, you could also quickly figure out uh, what the background theology of that group was, that something sounded too good to be true, so they would just ch- maybe change a word here and there. But when compared from East Coast all the way across to what's Turkey today, uh, it gives so much uh, material for a, a, a robust, a credible um, uh, c- comparison with the manuscripts we had. And as Anne rightly said, just because the, the oldest on this series always right, it's the, it's the analyzing of the bulk of the manuscripts that helps us compare to the oldest written Bibles and see which ones were written most uh, scrupulously, uh, accurately. And the Bible has been through 3,000 years history of that process. And I know at the end of the day, when we encounter Jesus and we feel his love and we go to the book of John, we start reading, by the Holy Spirit, we witness with those words as Jesus talking to us. That's the internal uh, revelation that we get. We also know the Bible is Scripture because Jesus called it Scripture, and the apostles did, and the prophets that wrote it spoke as God spoke to them. But having this kind of input and information, I mean, when last were you in a church where you had a teaching like this? Probably not many of us. Never. And this is, as Anne knows probably better than anyone else here, is not even scratching the top of the top of the iceberg. It's such a big topic, this. 
uh, one that fascinates me immensely, um, the study of, of, of Greek and, and manuscripts and textual criticism. And th- there's, a, there's a Greek Bible, I've got one on my desk, that makes reference to all 5,500 manuscripts on every single word. These were German uh, theological professors who sat over four generations, Bachmann, Gerhardt, Heineke, and some other guy, over four generations, and took every word of the Bible and put in all the possible variances. And they've got a meticulous textual uh, reference card that you can go and see exactly what manuscript, was it the P46, um, what the word was. I mean, that is the detail that people have given, given their lives to the study of the word, the external evidence. Never mind the theologians who've given up their lives for internal evidence and the studying of systematic theology and the studying of um, doctrines of the Bible. But those who've studied the external, who've studied it in the various languages, these are such brilliant minds and people that the world has come to know that have benefited the West immensely by their huge knowledge that they've added. So, all this again is to say, when we pick up a Bible, we don't have to read it in Greek, we don't have to read it in Hebrew, we've got to read it in the Holy Spirit. But we have an assurance and a confidence that this wasn't just some man's idea 150 years ago that he couldn't sleep one night and he wrote a book and he called it the Bible. This is, can only be the work of a sovereign oversight, a sovereign uh, supervision that took place that we know now is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this, for me, gives me a lot of confidence in the Bible. Okay, so any, any things you'd like to clarify? There's three quickly. I'm going to give ladies first. Ladies first. <laughs> so I, I want to know, Anne mentioned that the earliest English translations were not translated from the original, but were translated from, from the Vulgate, from other translations. So where, which was the earliest, most, like, earliest English translation from the original language? Yeah, Anne and I can answer. Yeah, you probably have more we, chance. We both to study this topic. In, yeah, in, in, yeah. Thanks, Jen. Can I? Um, Anne will correct me if I, I get this wrong. The oldest full Matthew to Revelations, as Anne correctly said, was about four fifty. Before that, without Revelations and without one or two other books that were left out. By the way, they weren't just left out nilly-willy, capriciously. They were left out on the basis of they weren't transmitted, they weren't the words of the apostles. So if a book was found that wasn't written by the direct apostles of Jesus, that was one of the criteria. There were several. So revelations, they weren't quite sure who wrote it. And it was, even though he said John, it could have been another John. 
So the, the, the first full Greek Bible, Bible was about, say, between 350 and 400. Um, there was one um, stream of Bible translation that stayed Greek, and that moved into the, the eastern, modern-day Turkey, um, Armenia. And then there was the, the other, the Latin, which moved west, Rome, Italy, up north. And the Greek translations were the oldest translations. So when it was eventually translated English from the Latin, they used relatively more newer manuscripts, like the King James. That's why the King James, sorry, as much as we love the King James, wasn't based on the, most, the best, the best uh, manuscripts. From Latin and from some of the... This 500, 600 work. Whereas the more recent translations take cognizance of the older, the papyri and the unicles. Those were older, they were made into books. I don't know if. Your King's Galatians was 1600, 1650 somewhere. And then that was the household Bible for 200 years. New translations only came into existence, like the, 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 the Good News Bible and uh, the, the American Standard Version, I think, was one of the first, uh, uh, not even 100 years ago. So we've only had the more newer translations, which are more based on study of the Greek uh, 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 papyri and unicles manuscripts than the Latin um, Bill, um, can I just say something to, with with Anne preparing all this? <clears throat> I was just so awestruck. Uh, this is not half of what she did because when Anne does something, she goes in at full tilt, and uh, she went through all this. And what struck me is the awesomeness of our God through all these things to bring the true word all the way through. And that scripture that says you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. And as we seek the truth and as we, we, as we uh, grab hold of what God is doing, this just backs us up. This just gives us more confidence in, in what God has already done. When you look at that awesomeness, it's just amazing to see that. Good comment. Now, any other questions? Qumran scrolls were Old Testament. Those are part of the Dead Sea, but they're only Old Testament. They're, yeah. Yeah. It was a, a community called the Qumran community that lived up in the mountains as ascetics to avoid persecution. And because of their works and hidden in caves, we have the, the Dead Sea scrolls. Que- any other questions while Anne was talking? Just like, uh, she, I'd like to clarify. So there are other older writings. Um, well, are you saying you're saying there's nothing else in the Judeo-Christian tradition that predates the Bible 
probably there isn't. But there, there were certainly documents in other religious traditions in Mesopotamia, um, papyri and even the tablets, the clay tablets, which would predate any copies of the Bible or any copies of biblical texts that we have. Other people also wrote their stories down. Um, it was the legend of Gilgamesh and things like that. You know, so there's a lot of early material of, from the other cultures of that area as writing started. Questions? This is a hugely interesting subject, and there's good stuff you can Google on it. Um, if you're interested in this topic, I've also got a, do a dozen books. So if you're interested in subjects like that pertain to this textual uh, tradition, manuscript, how the Bible is put together. Um, is there anything still outstanding that's left out that's not yet included in the Bible? Anyone want to answer that? No, when, when the church council came together in about 350 AD, um, some books had been circulating that were not written, weren't apostolic books, and we call them the New Testament Apocrypha books, Gospel of Thomas and Gospel of Maccabees, Bartholomew. Yeah. There's an Old Testament uh, uh, books that were written that weren't included, that the Catholic Church included. The reason they weren't included in our Bible is because they don't mention God. That's why Esther was nearly left out and wasn't included because it doesn't mention God. It's just history. It's a history book. Fascinating. And the, uh, the, the, the synod, the council, the church leaders of the day got together and said, we want books that speak about God. And that's why the Catholic Church in the West kept those and the East didn't. Um, but in terms of the apocryphal books that circulated, they had to weed out those from even some... So that so was so called by the apostles, but then were found to be fraudulent. And the men of those leaders of that day in the church of that day all got together and they said, We've got to now weed out the wrong from the right and make a decision here what we believe should be taken on to in the in the church going forward. And the books they came up with were these books that Anne mentioned. Revelations came in a bit later because there was some doubt on authorship. And uh but to go into too much detail further than that, but just to say no, the Bible is pretty... Uh, you know, if someone comes up next to you with say, hey, here's a new book you want to put in your Bible, then I'd, have a, you know, I'd say, all right, so you disagree with 2,000 years of history. Question? Hundred percent, hundred percent. Not even close. History of Julius Caesar is like a few little manuscripts or like a dozen compared to five and a half thousand on the Bible. It's not even close. But no one doubts Julius Caesar existed and they read it and they make movies about it like it's factual. And the earliest evidence is long after he lived and there's a few little scraps. But the Bible has got uh, whole books written within 200 years. And then uh, papyri confirming uh, going back all the way to the original. Good question here would be, do we still have the original Bible? There is no such thing as original Bible. It was first translated orally 
but very strict, and then uh, put to text soon thereafter. Questions? Very good question. In our very first teaching, we did the three different, remember, uh, literal translations, dynamic equivalent, and paraphrase. So it all depends what you're looking for. The American Standard Version would be a good literal translation, so Greek word to English word. See, going back to the Greek, not back to the Latin. Uh, A good dynamic equivalent, which is trying to capture what was meant then to now in language. ESV, NRV is good. And then your paraphrase, take a pick from the living right through to, to the message. And the passion would, actually passion would be more in the middle. It's an accurate translation. That passion's not a paraphrase. It's a very accurate translation. Is that, Chrissy? Joy? Joy and then Lee? The Amplified's not, the, the expounding of words in the Amplified is just an English uh, expounding. It's got nothing to, cinnamon, synonyms, and it's got nothing to do with the meanings of the actual Greek words. No, the, in fact, uh, um, it's probably the bottom of my list of books, of translations is the Amplified. I'm sorry, sorry. I prefer the King James. Lee? Brilliant, yeah. Yeah, did you hear that? I mean, that's, that's a very good point. And then even in um, later, uh, more like early New Testament times, when someone would sit with Mark, like with Mark he would tell the story about, of what Jesus did. People that took it would take it in groups and clusters and go and retell the story almost immediately. And if they got something wrong, someone in the group would say, no, no, that's not what he said, and they'd sit and discuss it. <laughs> And they would sit and discuss, and they would come to consensus first, or go back to the original storyteller to get the correct version before they retold the story. So just because it was oral, don't think it was just broken down telephone. It was highly effective. So, but that's a good point. All right. I mean, gee, I feel like some energy here. Just, um, we're going to jump topic a little bit uh, Next few Sundays, we're going to still stick on the Word, the Bible, as God's Word, but more practically, how to live in the Word, how the, how the Word affects our lives. And then next Monday night, I want to do a teaching as passionate as, as I know Anne is about uh, um, manuscripts and transmission, is I'm passionate about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. When, when they recognized and they said, and he said, to, turned to the Scriptures and he, he, he showed them himself. When we see Jesus in the Old Testament, that is an amazing. And I want to share how that actually, how, how that works out practically, how to do that. What are responsible ways of finding Jesus 
in the Old Testament and in the Old Testament scripture. And then that will be our last um, on the word. And then we have got Rob Rufus out with us at the end of the month. And I've, instead of having, did everyone get one of these flyers? You'll, you'll notice 